Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In real estate, you can achieve a lot on your own, but you can scale a lot faster and more successfully with the right partnerships. There are too many functions required in real estate to scale efficiently on your own. Jerome Maldonado, real estate investor and developer, built a great portfolio of homes, retail, and warehouses, but has really scaled his business to new heights since 2018 with several lucrative partnerships across several asset classes and markets. So today we have with us a man who has done myriad things in, in the field of real estate. This guy has been a developer, a syndicator. This guy has done single family. He's done retail. He's done multifamily. He has done pretty much everything there is to do almost. He is the founder and CEO of Quad J Capital. Uh, he's an investor, a developer, an author, and a business investor to boot. He is Jerome Maldonado. Jerome, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you for having me. Appreciate the introduction. You made me feel like I was 90 years old, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did, you did, hey, man, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. It's, it, it's kind of like in preparing for this conversation, you know, I was like, okay, where do I start with this guy? And, and like I said, I've heard you on a couple other podcasts and I've been super excited to do this. So maybe, maybe the way to go about it, I thought, okay, how am I going to kick this off? And here's how I'm going to do it. Tell me what you're doing now. Actually, before we do that, you're in the, I think you're the first guy I've podcasted in the great state of New Mexico. So tell me, is that where you're born and raised? Is that where your family is? And, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was born and raised here in Albuquerque. I left for a good amount of time. Um, I was traveling and gallivanting the country uh, with my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, found a lot of hard times and a lot of great times, a lot of learning, a lot of it, a lot of building. Did my college, did my college years um, in that of New Mexico, um, graduated as a Lobo here in New Mexico and uh, came back and landed up getting married. Um, I never thought I'd be back living out here. It's, it's a beautiful place to live. Economically, we're not the best state in the world, um, but it's one of the prettiest states in the world. And so I'm, I'm you know, happy to be out here and, and I am from the land of enchantment. I see. What's funny you say that about economically, I've been involved in investor with this one syndicator for over 20 years and they're up to like, this multifamily, they're up to like 22,000 units. And so they've been in and out of a zillion properties, but the, the one that did the worst that I've been involved in is in Albuquerque. And that's a long time ago, but uh, I don't yeah. want to, we don't need to talk about that. It's not that interesting, but, but what is, what does sound interesting to me is you said that you traveled all over country, had hard times. So, so what does that mean? And where did this happen? I think every entrepreneur wants to have immediate success in their life. We all live in a, an instant gratifying world, right? We want to have instant everything from instant coffee, instant fast food, instant success, instant um, love and marriage, instant everything. And um, just like anything in life, as we grow and mature, we find out that there is no instant everything. Everything in life takes nurturing, watering, care, time, love, commitment, uh, a lot of things. And um, so when I say I was gallivanting the country trying to find success and went through hard times, that's just, there's, there's a story behind every story and there's a lot of, um, a lot of ups, lots of downs. And, um, and you know, we're, we're here 
and more more good times and more ups and downs and even the downs were really great times roger i can't even say they were bad times they uh you know i remember one of my mentors telling me he goes you guys are gonna you guys are gonna starve you guys are gonna be out there um trying to make things happen you're gonna look back out these days one day and you're gonna say best days of my life and um and roger they really were we were like we were free living um a dream a spirit and we were out there working hard and i was all over the country and um and they were some of the best days of my life uh you know not that any one day is, is worse or better than the other but they were good days um in spite of the hard times that we went through the ups and downs through our journey got it well yeah man i mean i didn't gallivant all over the country, but I'm an entrepreneur and, and there were years I couldn't pay my bills. And, and, you know, now that I'm in a position where, you know, I've done very well, I, if nothing else, those times make me appreciate what I have now that much more. So what are you doing? So again, you know, at the I, I introed you, I've done, you know, looked at your profile, heard you, and I know you've done a lot of different things. What are you doing now, Jerome? So I'm doing a lot of what I've done for a lot of years, plus uh, bigger stuff. You know, we've we've evolved for sure. Um, we still we're still developing single family re- uh, residential real estate. In fact, I was uh, on the phone this morning trying to deal with subcontractors and so forth in the office, and we got a couple single family builds going on. We buy land, and we build houses. Uh, we got about uh, twenty little 20 plus homes going up between Washington state, California, and here in New Mexico. Um, and that's our, our day in day out. We still run a full-time concrete company that does eight figures a year in revenue. And, um, we started that business in 1998. We still own that company today. Um, still have boots on the ground and employees at work. Um, but our biggest, our biggest move that we're doing right now, we've been developing for years, a lot of retail pre uh, recession, 2008, we evolved into a lot of value add stuff uh, post recession, and then we got back into new commercial development into the multifamily build and hold sector uh, since 2016. And so we're doing a lot of build and hold multifamily apartment complexes right now. Um, so I got, we got stuff going on in uh, three different cities, uh, large, large, you know, 25 to 35 million dollar builds over 100 plus units per uh, per build. And so that's really um, where we are now. And then just out of curiosity, where, where in California is the house that you're building? The house is, uh, we have multiple ones up there, but they're in the, in the Palm Springs area. Um, if those people are familiar, anybody's familiar with the Coachella and the, um, the music festival, it's, they're right up in that area there. And, uh, it's a big, it's a big, uh, short term rental market up there. So we, um, we sell to a lot of short term rental investors and, um, and it's a great little, great little hidden, hidden gem for us that we're building out in there. So interesting. And, and what are the size of them and approximately how many are you building? <laughs> well, we only have three. We did three, three test samples and probably more going up here shortly, but, um, they're only about 2,100, 2,200 square feet. And, um, they're simple builds, you know, in all honesty, the whole kicker on them is they're nice, they're new, they're clean. They we throw some swimming pools in the back of them and the houses sell for, you know, between six fifty and 700,000. And, um, these guys are getting three fifty to $400 a night and short-term rentals on those things on average. And they're leased up 85% of the year. So, um, you know, real successful arbitrage model for Airbnb people. If you're, you know, so you're from Washington state on the single family side down to California and other markets, how do you determine where to go? 
It's a big country out there. Yeah, it is. It is. And so I've always stayed put between Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Arizona being probably our more, most bullish uh, state that we're in, uh, real estate-wise. Um, Arizona's been great to us. Um, the, the reason I decided to get into Arizona years ago was the, re- the post-recession, it was one of the big five. And the big five were the five uh, city, the five states that, had, that got hit the hardest during the recession, uh, which California, New York, Florida, Arizona, and Nevada. Those five states got hit the hardest in 2008. And, um, and Arizona was the closest to me. I traveled and hit all of them. We did a little stuff in California, um, but really, and we were doing stuff in Nevada. The, Nevada was so distressed after the recession that we, we did, I couldn't even see the upside to it in an immediate standpoint where Phoenix um, got hit so bad. Um, I knew the city felt comfortable with it. And so we became extremely bullish in 2009 in, in the Phoenix market. Um, Washington, we got in because I got a great business partner out there. Um, I, I got intrigued by his business model, um, the profitability that he was utilizing outside of um, the red tape as far as getting entitlements is very, very time consuming. Um, there's a, a longevity that take that it takes to get entitlements done in Washington State in most municipalities. Um, it's a very lucrative area, and so that's how we got into Washington State. Was based on my my business partner Ramez in that area. Um, he's he kind of introduced me to that area, and it's been a very uh, lucrative area for us. And um, California, uh, we uh, we were introduced by a, another buddy of mine that uh, is uh, lives over in San Bernardino. And um, the, it's in the cannabis industry. Um, that desert, desert hot springs, Palm Springs area, is one of the largest cannabis and marijuana growing, um, indoor growing cities in the world. They're building, they're building warehouses like subdivisions out there uh, for in, indoor growing. And um, we, uh, I didn't realize what the market pertained to out there. And then there's a lot of other attributes in that area. So a lot of it comes from referral. Um, friends, colleagues, um, you know, that refer stuff to us. We get, we get stuff coming in, Roger, all over the country. We just got a project up in Virginia that I would never have considered even taking down, but, um, it just underwrites well. And, um, it's an off, it's an off market deal. Uh, there's a relationship between the two brokers. Um, and I have a really good working relationship with one of the two, uh, fortunately enough. And he said, Hey, I got, I got a guy that might be interested in this. And, he brought it to me, you know, and so I, I, I looked at it almost immediately. Within seconds, I, I, I looked at the project and said, "Oh my God, this is great! This looks really good." Um, and we get a lot of stuff coming across our desk. So when we get stuff like that, that almost immediately looks intriguing. Um, nine times out of ten, it is, and it's very rare that that happens. But we'll get since we're in the game, we'll get two or three of those a year that are are just kind of no brainers and. Um, so we'll just get stuff like that. So we have warehouses that I own in, in uh, Virginia, um, but we, we may be picking up an 85-unit apartment complex in uh, in Virginia right now. Here in the next in the next 30 days or so, just based on relationships. So a lot of our stuff that we find is based on relationships. In 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 these scenarios, you know, which, which sound varied for sure, uh, both asset class and partners and and markets. Uh, is there a role that you typically play consistently uh, across these, whether it be in the construction phase or asset management? Like, what what do you typically bring? What are they looking f- for when they when they go to Jerome? 
Yeah, they look for closers. So, um, so for anybody listening, you know, look here, here's the thing: um, you got to get good at not it, it, it not everything, but you got to get good at underwriting deals and good at closing, understanding what you're looking for. It doesn't matter what size the deal is. So if you're somebody who's just getting started and you're, and you're looking at small deals, we've all been there, right? Like none of us started with big deals. Um, in fact, you know, we didn't really take down what I would consider really large deals into two, until 2016. Um, yes, we were doing million dollar deals, little, you know, what I would say, you know, between a million and $8 million deals pre, um, pre 2016, but we really got into the, um, eight figure asset class going over 10 million. Um, since 2016 forward. Um, but we were doing a lot of little retail in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And one of the reasons that people would bring me these little buildings back in the day um, is because we close on them. They knew they could depend on me and I was real honest with them. So very transparent. And so there's a transparency that you got to, um, that you got to have with your relationships. And so when, when deals come across our table, um, people that respect us, those relationships have been developed based on ver- being extremely transparent and also um, being able to close. But most brokers, wholesalers, uh, colleagues, they just want to know that they have somebody, one, dependable and two, uh, capable. And so I always tell people, become educated in whatever asset class you're looking at to buy. And what I mean by that is if it's small retail, like we did little 8,000 to 20,000 square foot retail buildings, we still own 11 of them today. I became um, extremely good at knowing what I was looking for in those markets. And if they didn't fit my business model, I was very transparent with them and telling them that it didn't fit my business model. We appreciated them bringing it to us, but bring us some more. And um, and people appreciate it. And they always did. They'd always bring us more. And when I when I looked at stuff and it fit my business model and I knew it was something that I wanted to to take on almost turnkey, I would commit to it and I'd follow through and we'd buy. And when I did that, um, there's an appreciation value that brokers, wholesalers, and other colleagues have, and they'll bring you more deals. And so a lot of our deals really come from relationships. And I always tell people, this, this business is a relationship business. It's, um, it's like planting seeds, like harvesting a garden. Um, you got, you plant a lot of seeds out there. Not every seed, um, that, not every seed that's planted grows. Um, but you water the entire field. And as you water the entire field, all of a sudden you, uh, you nourish it, you soil them in, and all of a sudden growth comes. And that's where a lot of our deal flow comes from now, Roger. It's just years of being consistent in the game and um, years of, uh, of making sure that any time we, we, th- we had a deal to come to our table that we committed to, we did just that and our follow-through was strong. And so very, very important. And we've, uh, and those, those deals continue to flow and we're, we're grateful for all those relationships. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. So once it closes and, you know, a partner brings you in because they know that, you know, you, you kind of bring that P 
piece that you can get the deal over the finish line. Is there a specific role that you typically play post-close in deals that you have, or does it depend on the deal? Yeah, it really depends on the deal and the partner that I'm, I'm in with. So I never had business partners until 2018. 100% of what we did from, from 1998 all the way to 2018 was 100% um, our own capital. We didn't raise a penny from anybody. We did 100% of our acquisitions in-house. And our off, my office did 100% of the, the asset management, project management, property um uh, everything, construction, all of it, all the, all the way through and through the entire process. So we're good. I like to believe that we're, I like to believe anyways, Roger, without pounding my chest that we're good in all of them. Although to your question, I prefer the construction end, which is what most people hate. So where now I do have business partners. Um, you know, we got a, a 104 units going up in Phoenix, got another 85 units going on in Tucson, um, have some stuff going on up north uh, with another 160 unit. And all of those, I become more of the project management developer um, lead in the in my play, my role, and it just has to do a lot with my construction experience. Um, I don't mind dealing with the architects. I don't mind dealing with the engineers. I don't mind dealing with entitlements and dealing with the city and the municipalities. I don't mind dealing with the, the general contractors and the construction because I understand it, and um, and I'm good at it. There's very few people that have. Um, the wisdom and knowledge in that sector. And so I take that on and I like less the, the asset management and, um, and the syndication portion of it, although we deal with it um, and we're, and we're good at it. Um, it's just, I prefer, I'd rather be, I'd rather deal with the blue collar guys, the architects and the engineers and the, and the uh, contractors than, um, than dealing with the investors and the, and the asset management. So I kind of let that off to my partners a lot of times. And I, focus on what I do best and like best. And, and that's the construction development aspects of the, of the builds and the, uh, and the takedowns of the acquisitions. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, because from your perspective, you know, that's where you like to live. It's the piece of it that a lot of people don't want to get their, uh, you know, hands, hands wet. I don't know if that's the right term or feet wet is actually the term. They probably don't know how, regardless, even if they did. And so, and then you don't like the, you know, once it's built, you don't like dealing with the brain damage of an asset management investor relations. And so do you, you go in then and, you know, you just probably have some kind of an equity share, which is, you know, on a deal by deal basis. And that's pretty much how it works. Yeah. And they're bringing you the deals. Yes and no. So um, I do get some partners like that. I, I'm very selective. I only, I only really have two partners that I really deal with. Uh, the rest of them, I, I tried going out and expanding with other partners. Um, what I realized is you need to have some partners that bring, that, that bring something tangible to the table. Um, real experience and financial um, lucrativeness. So I, I we tried going into partnership with people that we felt had wisdom but didn't have capital and um, didn't work too well. Um, so I, I suggest to people, go into somebody that has an equal best, vested amount of capital into it. Um, I know some people getting started don't have capital and their partners and their influences don't have a lot of capital. So two broke people that are extremely motivated can do extreme things together so long as there's not greed involved. Um, but now that we do have capital, I'm a little bit um, gun shy of doing 
business with broke people, in all honesty. Um, you know, I think to, I, I love mentoring people and love helping them create lucrative um, aspects in their life. And I get a lot of them coming in saying, hey, Jerome, you partner with me. And the answer to that is no, I won't partner with them. Um, and mainly because they haven't, um, they don't have the affluency I need as a, for a partner right now. And so when we get, when we get involved with, uh, with partnerships and we bring people in partnerships, um, they have to bring something to the table. And in this day and age, we're a lot more selective. We have a lot more to lose. Um, there's a lot, um, our acquisitions are a lot larger. Once upon a time, right? We would go in and, and we had a lot of bad partners. That's why I didn't partner with people for a lot of years. Um, when we started partnering with people again in 2018, um, we picked a, a, a few partners and the ones that posed to be the best partners are the ones who already had success. Um, the ones that, um, that we shunted off and we shaved off and are no longer partners with us and we made those relationships come, go, and disappear are the ones that had less financial affluency and less to bring to the table. And so I tell people, we all got to start someplace. I, I was there. I was that guy. Um, they had to start someplace. Um, but I was never out trying to partner with people. I, I figured a lot of stuff out through the means of mentorship, watching people, trial and error, a lot of failures. Um, and I started having success. Um, every time I partnered with people in early years, um, I found that that we we both lagged in, in different attributes. And a lot of times those partnerships failed. And so hence, I got away from partnerships back in 1997. And after 1998, forward, we, we just got away from them 100%. Uh, but now to scale, partnerships are super important. And so when we have people bring stuff to the table, I don't do a lot of equity ownership of people bringing me their deals. And then I come in as an equity owner. I want to, I want to own 50% or best better of that project. If I don't own a minimum of 50% of it, I, I really don't have interest in them anymore. Um, I need to have something that has a, a lot of lucrative um, aspect, uh, attributes to it. And we're very selective or we'll take it down ourselves. Um, that way we limit our liability and take the profits and the upside for us. And it sounds greedy, but it just, and it is in so many ways, but it's just a business model that works for us. So whatever anybody calls it, you know, sometimes to, um, to make things work the way you want them to work, um, you got to take them down yourself. You got to get good at understanding how to do all aspects of the business. Um, you don't have to become great at all of them. You just got to get good enough to understand all aspects of the business and then and know who your attributes are and focus on those with, with just a few good partners, not a lot of them, just a few. Mm. G- given the state of the market today, um, you know, where the prices have gone crazy pretty much in every asset class and every market by and large, uh, sure. There's needle in a haste. There's always a needle in a haystack somewhere. Uh, you know, and when it comes to a deal, but where do you think, you know, from your perspective, a guy that's, you know, that's that's done, you know, retail, single family, you're now doing multifamily, you've done warehouses. Where do you think the best opportunity is today? Like if you were starting from scratch and you're giving somebody advice, where, where would you start today? I'd start creating capital immediately. Um, I love the buy, land, build house model. I don't like the fix and flip model. Um, too many variables in the fix and flip model, um, especially with how how much appreciation and inflation has went on over the last couple of years. Um, you're buying an overinflated asset. You're going to dump more money into it and then try to get an over an even more inflated price out of it to, to squeeze a profit out of it. Just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, so I, I've been building houses, um, single family homes, People can do it without a contractor's license. They can um, exercise a, a cost plus model with 
with general contractors where they hire them um, at the cost of labor and materials plus a percentage, typically about 15%, and have a general contractor build out single family homes for them. And if they follow like our business model, we we go just over the median um, home. So we we start our um, our single family builds no less than half a million dollars. And we, we try not to go over 800,000 unless we're in a unique market like Washington state where the single family average home is over a million dollars. Um, you know, our, our acquisition prices are between 1.1 and 1.4 million, but out in that market, um, contrary, uh, you know, contrary to what, what's happening nationwide everywhere else. Um, that's the median, you know, in that market. So we, if you, if you do that, you can make six figures on every build. And I always tell people, you know, make some money first. And, um, if you, once you learn how to generate capital, now you have to figure out, you, now you have tax liabilities. You have to figure out, um, how are you going to deploy that capital? Um, how to reduce your liability and then get into some assets. Um, you know, and there's, there's, and a lot of variable assets. Um, and, and diversification is important, but staying focused initially is even more important. So what I mean by that is in early years, I wasn't all over the place. I did focus on retail. So I was doing a lot of value-add retail and we were doing a lot of new build retail. Um, the new build retail, I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't encourage anybody to get into that. It's just a, a really hard game, not, re, not a lot of liability, but the value-add retail is real good right now. And there's a lot of money in it. Um, you stay under 20,000 square feet. Um, there's still a mass need for little mom and pop shops, barber shops, beauty salons, nail places, insurance companies, um, you know, little churches, uh, little subway stores and restaurants and stuff. We lease those up all day long and um, they're very stable. They've been, you know, we're, we function at about a 90% occupancy in our small retail. Um, those are great asset classes. Now, if you want to evolve uh, to to like office warehouse um, is a big asset class that is not going to go dry anytime soon, if ever. Um, people need it. Mechanics, um, detailers, uh, suppliers, uh, their distribution. There's so much in office warehouse. And what I like about the commercial sector, even over multifamily when you're first starting out, is that multifamily, really for multifamily to work out well, where it's not as a, an encumbrancing job and it's more hands-off, you got to have doors. You got to have a lot of doors. And when you have like a fourplex, a sixplex, an eightplex, to me, multifamily is a massive pain in the ass because you got toilets to fix, you got light bulbs to fix, you got all these little logistical residential repairs. Um, you become a full-time um, handyman is what you become. Uh, where in retail, in in warehouse, in when you're first starting out, if you want to be hands-off, you can buy these little assets, um, do minimal renovations, just make the exterior of a sot look nice, clean out the insides, and you can do triple net leases. And the tenant is responsible for absolutely everything from utilities, water, heating, cooling, everything, toilets, plumbing. All you need to worry about is the roof not leaking and the walls not falling in. And if you can t- maintain those two things, uh, you got a good asset class and you cash flow a lot better. Um, so I like the small retail. I like the warehouse um, stuff to play in uh, when you're first starting out. Learn the game, learn the leasing. And then as you start to become more affluent, get into the multifamily. Everybody gets so excited about multifamily. Oh my God, multifamily is so sexy. I want to be in it. Um, well, to me, multifamily is a pain in the ass until you get over 35 units on a single on a single ownership. Single family rentals are a pain in the ass, in my opinion. Um, I don't like them until you have a portfolio and you have a management company that can uh, 
can manage those for you. Um, that's why we, we only get into assets in multifamily that are over a hundred units because we're a hundred percent hands off other than auditing paper. Once that asset is stabilized, um, we hand it over to a property management company and, um, we sign, you know, we just, we sign it off to them and we get boots on the ground twice a year to make sure that they're not running ruckus, grass isn't dying and our asset isn't becoming distressed. And outside of that, we audit paper. And, um, and then it, from there on, it's, it's hands off. So that's my personal opinion, my um, personal experience through all of what I've done over the years. So uh, it's intriguing what you talk about on the retail side, because, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, it seems like there's a huge focus on multifamily or maybe it's just a bigger industry. I don't know what the reason is, but here's my question. So in that space, 20,000 square feet or less, you know, non Amazon, they're not threatened by the Amazon effect because they're a dog groomer, they're a church, there's you know anything, number of things that you're never going to, a restaurant you can't do online, right? So yep. what's happened with pricing in that asset class in the last few years? Has it gone zoo like everything else or, you know, what does that look like? No, they're pretty stable. You know, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fair bet. And here's the thing. When you're first starting out in real estate, yes, big wins are great. You know, we've, we've killed it in multifamily. So I'll tell you, multifamily, like I said, it becomes, it becomes very, very attractive when you have those runs. But I'll take like warehouse, for example, warehouse beat every asset class in 2019, 20 and 21, um, hands down. 2021, um, off um, warehouse, industrial warehouse grew by 31%. Their rent rates grew by 31%. Um, year over year in the industrial warehouse. Absolutely unheard of. Roger, I've, I've owned warehouse in all the years. I, I, my comps from what I was doing back in 2000 to where they were in 2019, we're talking marginal increases. We're talking maybe 2% increases a year. Um, and I'd say less than that because realistically, I maybe have seen a 5 to 10% rent growth over that time. But here's the thing. Some people are sitting back, they're going, Jerome, that's horrible. I don't want a 5 to 10% rent growth. Well, when you're first starting out, Roger, there's two, two issues. One is capital and two is, is affluency. Now, you learn the game. And for most people, I'll, I'll just be perfectly honest. There's a certain type of person that, that can go out and raise capital and syndicate these deals. But there's very few good ones. And so being realistic, this thinking about 95% of our listeners out of 100 people that are listening to for every 100 people that are listening to this podcast, there's maybe five that are capable of syndicating correctly. Okay. When I mean by that, doing the whole process from starting the, uh, the uh, syndication process, um, raising the capital, managing the asset, stabilizing the asset, renovating the asset, increasing rents. It's an undertaking. There's a lot to it. And so maybe a handful, and I'm being very generous. Now, what happens to the attrition rate of the other 95 people that are listening to this podcast? They get washed away with the masses. And so I'm talking to those 95% of people out there. Being realistic, I understand that, yes, the potential for people to go into big, massive deals and syndicate and utilize other pe- people's money is very realistic, very realistic. And there's no lack of money out there. There's no lack of projects out there. Um, in fact, there's there's more projects out there than we have the bandwidth to be able to take down um, reasonably. And so, yes, that opportunity exists. But the reality, Roger, is that 95% of people, they are their own biggest, um, they are their own 
uh, biggest hindrance in their life because mentally they can't even wrap their head around it. So I try to tell people realistically, those 95 people out of every 100 that are listening to this, they're saying, Jerome, but how about me? Like, how do I get started? Well, they can get started just like I did. You know, I bought a distress retail center that was a piece of shit. $225,000 I paid for it. Those exact same assets still exist today. 25 years later, Roger, they're still out there. And, um, and they're just, they're, they're financially and physically distressed. They're buildings that um, are locked up. They have some little roof leaks on them. Um, they, can't, they, they weren't leased correctly. And um, people hadn't put the time, money, effort, and love into them. And there's a bunch of walls inside of them that don't make sense. And you go to, you go to these people, you pick them up. A lot of times on owner finance deals because banks don't want them um, for a minimal ad- amount of down payment. You throw, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars at these buildings, a more um, sweat capital than anything. And and every any average Joe working a full time job can get into these. Any average Joe buying land and building one house a year, making an extra hundred thousand dollars, can get into these. And so when we talk about it, these little retail centers, they're, they're real little deals because one, they're inexpensive. They're not a lot of liability. The, the growth potential isn't extreme, but they rent. And so like even my office where um, I still hold my office, Dave, owned that building since 2000, I've made over $2 million in rental income. That building is only 8,800 square feet. And um, in year over year, that thing is almost 100% leased about 95% of the time. And um, I just I, we have a, a laundry service in there a wash and fold laundry service. We have a, um, a little smoke shop in there. We have our office in there. We have a barber shop in there. And then we have a cannabis um, company that does cannabis manufacturing in that building. And between those tenants, um, yes, they've revolved over the course of time, but we, uh, you know, we get about six figures in rent a year out of that building. And I'll tell you, our expense and cost to manage that little tiny building, very little landscaping, if any, there's almost no landscaping on it. And, um, and very little maintenance to the property. Um, we net about a hundred grand out of about maybe 120,000 that comes in. We don't have a lot of expenses on utilities. The tenants take care of everything. They're all triple net leases and it's almost hands off. Um, when the tenants call and complain about something, 90% of the time we send them a copy of their lease highlighted. So yeah. that they're responsible for what they're complaining about and we send it back to them and uh, we never hear back from them. And so that's what I love about it. And it's profitable. Multifamily, like, listen, guys, everybody out there, I know you guys are excited. People get excited about multifamily, but get in and confirm what I'm talking about. Go buy a little fourplex, a little sixplex. I've done it. You're going to be fixing toilets. You're going to have broken bathtub, broken faucets. You're going to have issues with toilets, sinks in the kitchen, sinks in the bathroom, bathtubs. You're going to have issues with air conditioners, coolers. And by the time you fix and repair that on a fourplex, you're making zero money. I don't know anybody that makes money on fourplexes. They're a pain in the ass. And if they make money, you have to sit back and value. What's your time worth? And it's going to cost you, what, $100,000 or better a door? So you're going to spend double on a little fourplex than you would on a little retail center and less than a half of the profitability, if not more. So my my whole thing is let those 95% of of people have some success. And once they've had some success, keep those things. That's why I keep 11 buildings because... Financially, we make a half a million dollars a year um, net income on eleven little buildings, and that's just that's just icing on the cake on top of our income. And they're great little hands-free um, retail centers. They're awesome. I love them. Hmm. How how long does it typically take to fill a vacancy? 
not long, you know, because we rent for cheap, you know, we don't like, we talk about rent pushes. I don't mind renting for less. I had a buddy get mad at me the other, um, uh, last year we were at a conference and I told him, I said, I'm not the best, um, landlord in the world, um, to be realistic. I don't push the rents for as much as I probably should. I, um, I, I work with my tenants probably more than I should. And he goes, drone, you're, you're online. You're a professional. You can't be telling people that stuff. And I said, I said, bullshit. I'm going to be real with people. Like I'm going to explain to them. Like I don't do that. I work with them. Why? Because I want my buildings full. I mean, I can, I can exercise my leases to, um, to a T and, um, and leverage people to a T if I really want to, but I know I'm going to have more vacancies when I do that. So why not just level with people and tell and let people know? Like I don't give people free rent. I don't. Um, I, I'm not uh, letting dequalified tenants come into my buildings. All our tenants are a qualified tenants. We run credit checks on all of them. But I don't. If they're loyal to me, I'm loyal to them. If they're if they're in my buildings for four or five years, I don't push rents that much. I'll maybe increase them by two three percent a year, and um, and just get my normal appreciation out of them. But I'm not out to pound them over the head. Um, a lot of times, I won't even look at fair market value. If I own the asset free and clear, which most of them we do, and um, and we have an ROI that makes sense, and our ROI is strong, and we're cash flowing, why why make my tenant look tr- go out and, and try looking for a new place to move when I could just retain them? Is my philosophy like I want them there? If they're paying rent and they're not problematic, I will work with them and I will keep their rents low. And in spite of making my asset um, value maybe lower because of I'm not pushing the rents, um, doesn't having vacancies make your asset worth less money anyways? So my philosophy is keep it full, keep cash flow coming in, work with your tenants. Don't worry about pushing rent so aggressively if you have good quality people. Uh, make it work for their business. They won't even go moonlight on you looking for new places to move. Um, they'll just appreciate you keeping the rent fair and uh, keeping it where it's affordable and where it's profitable for them for, to run their business. And it's a win-win scenario. So that's that's the way I like running my retail centers, Roger. You know what, man? It's just common sense. You know what? You're, you're a nice guy, but it turns out to be just a win-win. And my guess would be you would entail, frankly, more cost with more turnover to try and eke out more nickels out of the deal and, and frankly, more heartburn. And, you know, and, and it probably does the center better to have the mix stay the same because it probably helps all the other tenants would be my guess uh, in all that. Are the small centers, are they... Uh, all within, let's say, I'll just put the number arbitrarily. Are they all within 50 miles of you or are they in different markets? So uh, 90% of them are all within like 10, 15 miles of me. Um, so I have, I have uh, nine of them here. A 10th one that we own, but we actually just sold on a contract to one of our, one of our uh, uh, students that bought a small building from us that works with us on our online, uh, our long, online education program. Um, and then we have one retail and one office building in Phoenix, which obviously those are several hundreds of miles from me. And then everything else that we own is multifamily and warehouse. And I have warehouses that are in Virginia. Those are far away. And um, we got warehouses in, in uh, Chicago. Those are far away. And um, But outside of that, all our multifamilies in the Southwest and Western regions of the United States. And But they're bigger ones and they're all hands off. Um, but yeah, all our retail's close. It's all close. We still manage that stuff. Um, our office still does the leasing and, um, and we do the management on all our retail that's done locally. Everything else is all managed by property management companies at this point in time. 
So in terms of the portfolio that you're describing, you know, Virginia, Washington State, uh, Chicago, you know, warehouses, uh, single family, multifamily. And earlier you said at this point, I think you said you have two partners. Maybe you said three. I just don't remember. But I guess outside of where you are there in Albuquerque and you go to those other states, are those collectively different partnerships you've had since 2018? Or do you own any of that stuff out of state with just you? Yeah, some of it's I own out of state just with me. And then uh, some of the stuff I own with partners, like, you know, Kyle Mitchell's one of my partners. We just do big multifamily distressed asset purchases that we reposition into multifamily. And then, uh, and then the stuff over in the warehouses in Virginia are with a partner of mine named Ty Lopez. Uh, he's a big e-commerce guy, owns Pier 1 Imports, uh, Radio Shack, and um, some of the other large brands that were bought out of bankruptcy in the last few years. And so we own some uh, distribution warehouses together. And we also have some big, giant, massive, multi-million dollar builds going on in Puerto Rico together. Um, but yeah, and then Romez up in Washington State. So we limit it to those three partners. Those are the only three partners that we have and facilitate business with at this time. I got it. And so again, like on the multi, I don't want to keep keep deliberating, but it's a fascinating conversation for me. So the deals, let's say that you do with Kyle on multifamily, then are you essentially, uh, you know, you're a general partner is what you're bringing to those deals, basically the construction piece of it. Yep. We do 50, 50 partnerships. We, uh, we don't raise a lot of capital. Um, you know, we have a $30 million build in Phoenix and we, we raised $1.4 million on the entire project. Um, so we come to the table with a little bit of capital. We, we build these things with a ton of equity and we're, we're, uh, extremely, extremely fortunate. There are, we got a few little pink unicorns out there that we're facilitating business on right now. And, um, but yeah, I bring the construction entitlement um, aspect to the partnership and Kyle deals with a lot of the um, asset management side of the, of the projects, which is awesome. It works out really, really well. You're accomplishing a lot of things. Very, very interesting. And you have a, a, a pretty broad, very broad base of knowledge. What would you say is uh, the most important lesson you've learned along the way? Uh, to be transparent with people, very uh, lay stuff on the table. I think in the, in business in general, um, a lot of entrepreneurs, they think that they're going to get a lot more leeway by not being uh, completely transparent. I see a lot of people that are um, that do things in a fashion that um, they do things in a fashion that that they mislead people. And it's a very um, bad way of doing business. Uh, you know, I think that they think they feel like if they're completely transparent, they're leaving too much on the table for other people to know. We're a hundred percent transparent. I tell people, be transparent with people, be honest and, and be very, very, uh, straightforward with people. You'll, you'll accomplish a lot more. I promise. Um, you know, if you do, um, I think people feel like someone's going to take something from them if they're extremely honest with them. And the reality is you're only taking from yourself if you're not, you know, if, if someone steals from you, because you're transparent with them and you give them too much information, is that really a partner you want to be doing business with anyways, right? Um, the partners that we deal with and the people that we deal with, um, you know, we want to have people that have the same the same mindset as us. So I tell people, just be transparent in all that you do, your transactions. And the more transparent, more honest, and more straightforward that you are um, in your dealings, I promise it'll come back to you tenfold and uh, your your success will will show and shine over the course of time. So here's, here's my last question. What do you think there's something that a lot of people don't know about you? <laughs> that they don't know about me. Let's see. What do people not know about me? 
I, I lay so much out there, right? Um, I'm actually, you know, this is a good one because I know most people um, would say Jerome's a very extroverted person. He's very outgoing, and I am. And there's times of both. Um, I'm a very, uh, I, I enjoy being a very lonely person. And I think most people don't know that about me. Um, I could travel this whole country, this whole world all alone, and um, I'd be okay with it. And I think people always feel like they need somebody with them. Um, I'm, I've always kind of been the quiet giant. I've, uh, I'm not, I know now that I'm on social media, it seems like I, I'm trans, I'm very, vocal about everything that I do. Um, but I'm a pretty quiet guy. Um, I, I really like to kind of just be left alone. Um, you know, I go to the gym with my hat low and my, and, um, did, don't care if anybody knows who I am, really don't care if people know, um, how well we've done. I really don't talk about it to anybody. And so I think for a lot of people, they, they don't really know that about me, but, um, if you run into me out in the world, you know, a lot of times it's not that I'm rude or anything. I just uh, try to hide in my own little circle, whether I'm on, on a, an airplane flight or, um, you know, a venue or something that people <coughs> run into me. I'm actually a pretty quiet guy um, when I'm in my own element and um, not as outgoing as I'm, I'm very outgoing. But once I once I take off my my entrepreneur business face, I'm a pretty quiet guy. And I, don't, I think most people don't really see that side of me, but I'm actually a pretty introverted person when it comes down to my personal life and, and my day in, day out living. Got it. Jerome, if somebody were to want to make contact with you, how would they do that? You know, we're real easy to find. Um, you can go into any social media platform from Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, um, you know, and just type in Jerome Maldonado. It's in the podcast here. And uh, you guys can click DM us and uh, hit us up. We're very easy to find. Got it. Well, listen, I very, very, very much appreciate this conversation. And uh, look, uh, it's very, very impressive what you've done. And I know that you are going to continue doing extraordinary things. So I very much appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you, Roger, for having me on the show. Really appreciate you. Talk to you soon, Jerome. Bye-bye. <laughs>